Hello and welcome to the Shiny New Object Podcast. My name is Tom Ollerton and this is a podcast about the future of marketing. Every week or so, I have the pleasure and the privilege to interview someone exciting from the industry about the, what their vision for the future of marketing is and also to learn a bit about the people behind the industry. And today, I am on a Zoom link with Avis Eastil, who is the Regional Head of Consumer for Lux Asia. Hi, Avis. How are you? I'm really good. No, I know that's not true. I we've been talking about this beforehand. I know you've been you've had a really big week away. We've, we've had a brilliant week away with our um, leadership team retreat, and we've had a brilliant time learning about the strategy and our transformation, and just getting to know our people. So it's been a tiring week. Yeah, but and you worked week. the weekend as well, right? You had to go. You had yeah. To work. Yeah, yeah, we all we all travelled at the weekend to get in. So uh, yeah, it's been it's 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 amazing to do this once a year and to get everyone together, realign everyone where we are, but also just to look at what we've done in the last year. Because when you're in the middle of it, you just don't see all the results. All you see is the pain, and then when you stop and look back, then you see the magic of what we've achieved. Whereas you know when you're in the middle of it, you're like. Oh, never done anything this year so you know a really good time to step back chill out socialize and also reflect on on what we've achieved and help the listener understand a little bit more about the business and your role yeah sure so um lux asia works in the beauty industry so we started out a distributor of beauty products and we've since added retail e-commerce in fact, we're an omni-channel player now. So we work with big, big brands. So we work with Bulgari, with La Prairie. Um, so we are the people behind those brands that helps them get into Asia and be successful in Asia. So my role in that is consumer marketing, consumer experience, and data and analytics. So frequently, people will not know the Lux Asia name because when we're out in the market, we look very, very much like the brands we represent. Uh, and you don't sound like you're from part of the world where you operate. What's your brand? <laughs> so I am not Singaporean. Um, so yeah, we're across the whole of Asia. I'm very lucky. I've, I've worked in Asia for six years now. And I come from the UK originally. I'm a Londoner. So... Uh, Working for Lux Asia to me is a really interesting place to be because if you look at my career, I've been very lucky to have a career in IT, um, a career in business management, and a career in digital. And so coming here to Lux Asia and working in the world of consumer, I get to use my IT skills, my business analyst skills, my data skills, my business management skills, my marketing as well so it's one of those jobs where it's almost like everything that's gone on in my career before now is really useful for what i do now and i and i feel very blessed for that because implementing marketing systems is frequently a very very heavy tech background is needed and while we have great tech people actually being able to convert the marketing knowledge through to the data through to the tech I think has really accelerated what we've done. So um, I really like the fact that my background is 
diverse and that it really helps me deliver marketing and great customer experience. So if you were going to advise someone to, to get into the industry, a smart driven student who's doing all the basics right, would you advise someone to niche down and go specific or would you think that they should follow the route you've taken by learning lots of different things and, and trying your hand at a, a complementary set of different skill sets? So I think it's, it's really down to what's on offer. So um, I've had, um, you know, because I am reasonably old now, I've had enough careers to be able to get areas of specialization in two or three areas. So the first thing I would advise people is whatever you start out, you may not end up that as your career. You know, it's very rare for people to always stay in exactly the same part of their career all their life you know we frequently have two or three different types of careers that can be complementary or can be totally different so I don't think people need to constrain themselves by a career path I know some people love to in which case great but for me it's always been a case of um, curiosity willing willingness to join in and opportunity so, you know, I started out in help desks and then I got an opportunity to go and work in business analysis and that went to consultancy. And then I got an opportunity to run teams in IT. So I made that move. Now, I wasn't, you know, ever thinking I was going to move into IT and I definitely wasn't thinking that one day I would move out of IT and into business management and business leadership. But it's, uh, for me, it's been an evolving path. So what I'd say to anyone coming in is, try these things. There are some things that I know I don't particularly like doing. I've tried them. Um, I didn't find them very satisfying. And then I stopped doing them. And it's great to be able to do that because sometimes you can define yourself by the things that you really don't enjoy. And then you can have a whole load of things you can enjoy. So put yourself forward, try those new things, ask for help along the way. I have had some of the most amazing bosses and mentors through my career who've taught me how to write specs, how to run P&Ls, you know, how to do great digital marketing. So, you know, take those opportunities, get that you're not an expert, ask as many questions as you can and work hard and smart. And you just might think like, you might find the thing you love or you might find the thing that you've tried and that wasn't for you but I do think experience is the thing that really helps you if you if you assume you're going to like something from looking in you really haven't got the full full background on it. Well, one thing you said really left out and this idea of having a willingness to join in which mm. I think is a lovely quality but it can lead to mistakes so what what are the big mistakes that you've made in those careers that you are really glad happened, even if at the time they were a bit horrible? So the, the two that really stand out for me, one was just a project mistake when I was a technical person. And technically the project worked, but for commercially the project didn't work. And so it ended up being a very, very costly project for the organization I worked for. Now, I learned from that that just understanding the technical side wasn't enough. You need to ask the questions and you need to understand how this fits in the world and what's the return on investment and 
how you can achieve that technically. And that was a big learning for me because I always thought, you know, the business was over there and the technical teams were over here. But ever since I've done that project, I've always gone, we are the project team. We have objectives which are both technical and business. and We need to go forward together. And when, we, when I joined LuxAsia and we were delivering Salesforce and single customer view systems, the first thing that I did was got our business people, our retail operations people, our brands people, our IT people together, plus myself and the P&L owners to make sure we understood the vision and where we were going. Because if you don't have that thorough understanding and you're all joining together, that really, really doesn't work. So that was my first big positive thing that I learned in my career. From a negative one, I think the thing that I've learned most is sometimes you can't go back. So I started in banking many years ago and um, I went through a career through insurance and into digital marketing. But when I moved to Asia, I thought I could go back to banking and I couldn't. It really, really wasn't for me. And I think it was because I'd grown to appreciate the fast pace of digital marketing. And when you're a digital marketeer, you know, particularly at Christmas where you've got two to five hour planning cycles and you're responding to what's happening with yourselves today or yesterday, that's a totally different environment to an 18 month, three year banking system implementation. And so I learned pretty quickly, although I understood it, I really didn't like it and it wasn't for me. So I think you can say either way. Sometimes you learn positively and that's something you take in your career. And other times you learn negatively and you say, that's just not for me. I shan't go back there. I'll concentrate on the fast-paced digital marketing things that I've you know, grown to love. And, so, and so, so what that defines the, me. So what are the things that you've also said no to in the, in the last few years? So that's... a, a really inspiring story about you know going back and saying no this isn't for me but in order to work the way that you work and get all those cross-functional teams together and to pull something together as complex as a single customer view you've got to I, I assume you have to say no to a lot of people and things and what have you become better at saying no to recently so i think i've been very focused on understanding what i'm here to do so a lot of the technology that we deliver can be used in multiple ways. It can give business productivity, for example. But our purpose, first of all, was to have a great CRM program that works across all channels. If I'd been distracted with helping the business gain productivity by using the same tools, we wouldn't have been successful. So I've been very good at drawing a line saying, Back-end business processes is these systems that are run by our IT teams. They are the source of truth. This is marketing. It's customer experience. If it's better for consumers, you're in the right place with me. If it's better for the business, if I can achieve it while doing something with consumers, I will. If it's better for the business and it's really easy to deliver and it delivers maximum value, I will but I won't try and re-engineer the business just because we have the tools. I'll make those tools available to others if they need them. So very much, I think, if, 
you're going to say no, you have to understand why you say no. So to me, we say no when it's not our area of expertise. And we say no when what we're being asked is not precise enough to be able to deliver something good. Because if you take half a brief, and I guess this is the business analyst in me coming out, if you take half a brief and then deliver that and then go through an iterative 22 change cycles to get to what the person wanted, you should have stopped and thought about it at the beginning and actually understood what you were trying to achieve. So a lot of the things I do now is about clarity. What do you mean by those words? Do you mean this or this or this? Because they're very different outcomes. Um, so it's not always a no. It's sometimes it's a, I can help you with that, but let's really understand what that is. And let's understand how that thing can be useful across the whole business to deliver maximum um, return. So with that in mind, what, I just think it's so interesting that you have this, you don't say no to things. You just, you question, you say, you say why. And I think that is, that's a really, really valuable point. But um, the, the, that sounds like quite a slow way of doing things. And um, was my, my nature is to kind of throw myself into things and kind of, you know, sort of learn as I go. And so it's, it's mm -hmm. very interesting to hear another, another side of it. But, you, but despite this calm, very analytical approach to making these decisions you must still suffer from overwhelm from time to time you know you you just said it yourself you've been you know you haven't you haven't had a day off in two weeks and you've been um you, and you still got to do the day job so how how do you how do you manage yourself how do you manage your job when it does get too much so for me i i kind of get process i am analytical you know i am um, structured in how i work that doesn't mean that i can't run from thing to thing and run slow you can be fast and structured but i think a lot of it is about protection and understanding the value of what you're doing so in my world it's really easy for email to take over every single moment of every day and it's really easy to be you know at work at 10 o'clock at night clearing your inbox because you can't sleep till you cleared your inbox well I don't worry about that anymore. I do the important and the urgent. And at the end of the week, I clear my inbox. So I leave Fridays for making sure that everything that needed work is done. And if it needs more work than you can achieve in the time that you've got to respond to all your emails, that I schedule it in my diary and I tell the person when I'm gonna work on it and give them a deadline that I'm gonna give them things. Now that, that doesn't mean that always works, of course, because sometimes something comes along and all those dates change. But at least I can explain to people what's changed. Um, I'm very good at ignoring things that are not important or urgent. So there's always a lot of noise in everyone's work. And I think it's um, easier to work out whether you really need to spend time on that. And, but I am sometimes quite distracted as well. You know, I found myself this morning doing two or three things that I really didn't have the time to do. And I kind of just gave myself a strong talking to. I mean, okay, you're just wasting your time now because you don't want to do the thing that's next. How do you, so how do you, know, when you're wasting, how do you know when you're wasting your time? How do you, how do you catch yourself? Well, you know what? Because it's usually something you fancy doing that really isn't as important. 
as the things you should be doing. It's as simple as that. Like, you know, I was trying to categorize some things this morning just to tidy something up, but it wasn't so untidy, it wasn't useful, but I had more, more pressing things to do. And it was just like, I'm tired, and I just wanted a bit of mental chewing gum for a while. And then I just thought, you know what? I'm still gonna have to do that thing this afternoon. And I'm better at the mornings than I'm in the afternoons at writing and it was copy. So I thought, you know what? Spend the morning doing that. And later on today, we'll go back to the things that are slightly more frivolous. Sometimes frivolous is good, isn't it? Yeah, I, lo- I love the idea of mental chewing gum. I think everyone who listens to this is guilty of that at some point. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, sometimes you just want to space out a bit and just chill. And, and then you're kind of like, well, this is probably not the time to be doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm very similar. Like my, my best version of my brain is, is as early as possible. Um, and, but, and if you end up doing your chewing gum with your, your best brain, it's like... I'm literally not doing any any favors here. So, exactly, so, Cap, yeah. so finally, what new belief or behavior have you started using to improve your work life in the last few years? So, I think for me, it's been about becoming more analytical in what the action should be. So, so I I can be depending on who I'm working with either very fast-paced and less analytical or slightly slower, but not slower and more analytical. And I think it, it kind of depends what organization I work within. If there's a load of analytical people who all want to just sort of go into their shells and do what they're doing, I become the action-orientated one. And if there's everyone just going to run off and do something without actually thinking about it, I become the risk-adverse analytical one. So I think the thing I've worked out in the last few years is it's okay not always to be the the same thing. And it's really good if you can flex how you think compared to the group to give it that bit that is missing. You know, you always hear about groups who don't have any people who finish things or lots of people who are very dominant in their thinking, but but maybe don't have the data behind it to make the decisions, but they want to make very fast paced. So I think the thing I've learned in the last few years is I can swap between them and I need to be mindful about when I need to do that. And an an example was uh, this week we were at our leadership retreat and we'd done some profiling of people's thinking styles and we had to build roller coasters. Now in our group, nobody took charge and I'm not the person who's going to take charge naturally. I've got a different profile, but I could see that we were, you know, not going to do well at this task. So my first question was, okay, who's the dominant one here? Who's going to take charge? Where's our leader? And everyone went, well, I'm not that. So I'm like, okay, we have a problem. So I'm not that either, but I'm going to play that role. I'm going to play that role and I'm going to get you all in and we're going to join this together and we're going to be timely. And I became the timekeeper, which was really interesting because I'm an only child and I've got no desire to build roller coasters at all. It just doesn't work for me. But I'm kind of conscientious enough that we had to finish the task as a team. So I joined in. So I think that way of thinking, it's been a bit of a revelation because when I was early in my career, I could only do it one way. 
Um, but now I'm a bit more experienced and are used to flexing. I know I can change the way I do it depending upon who I'm working with. And I think that's a good strength. I think that's an incredible strength. I, I was just trying to imagine if I do that. And I think I, I do do that from time to time. I think especially it helps when there's a, a time limit on something. If it's this, an open-ended or longer longer period, you, you sort of revert back to type and just assume that that will, that will see you through. But if it's like, right, we've got a pitch or we've got to deliver this thing and, and there's a gap, you just jump into that gap and you change the way that you work in order to get the job done. That's such yeah, an interesting I, I see that a lot. When people are under stress, they go back to their natural style. Um, so, you know, you can see when things are getting tough because everyone reverts to type. So I'm very aware what my style can be when I'm under stress. It's not pretty, by the way. Um, so I'm very aware, don't do that. And that gives me the time to go, okay, I'm getting agitated about this now. This isn't a great place to be. What can I do differently? You know, I can either jump around or I can do something practical. Um, jumping around probably isn't useful. So let's do something practical. And I think that's, um, you know, going back to the person who's just starting their career, that's probably a great piece of advice as well. Learn, learn when you're painful to your colleagues <laughs> and, what, and, and what prompts it and learn to shut up at that point and be a bit more constructive about life. Oh, fantastic. So we're now going to move on to your shiny new object. And I asked you before mm. we started recording what your shiny new object was. And I had lit, I'd never heard of this before, which is equally embarrassing as it is exciting because it means I'm going to learn something. So what is your shiny new object, Avis? Um, so my shiny new object is, believe it or not, a rather fetching looking torture instrument type of a water bottle. It's got big spikes on it and it's glass and it's... Um, it is a reusable water bottle. Now, why is this my shiny new object? First of all, it's the first time we as a group have really taken on environmental concerns and we got rid of all the plastic at our leadership retreat and we refilled our water bottles, which I think is fabulous because we're going to leave this earth in such a state if we don't start worrying about this immediately. The other reason why it's shiny is it's actually something we sell. It's called a beaker and it's beautiful. Um, and why is it important for a beauty company to sell water bottles? Well, it's a complementary product to us because, you know, we do fragrance, but we also do skincare and we do hair care. And really important for great skincare and healthcare is hydration. So I think of this as my power of one onto marketing. If I'm talking about skincare, and we've actually run these campaigns, we talk about all the different products you can use for skincare, and then we add our reusable water bottles, and we talk about hydration. Because you can't just put the cream on your face and hydrate, you need to hydrate from within. So this is my shiny new object, and I really like it. And so, is, so tell me about the, the business decision to launch that as a, like a, a, um, a complimentary product. Was that, 
is that something the business does on a regular basis where you're like, right, okay, well, what, what other areas can we move into? Because it, it, it seems like a very different thing. So can you help me understand how you arrived at that decision and, and what were the problems that you, you had to, to get that in market? Yeah, so we have moved um, many times in our product set. So when we started out, we were just fragrance. And then we added skincare, and then we added hair care, and then we added bath and body. So we're used to the idea of adding new products and making them successful. Um, but we're also used to the idea that you have to go slow with some of these. So for our shiny beaker, we actually launched it just in one store to start off with and tried it. But it's been an interesting progress because as a beauty company, we also do luxury lifestyle. And we also provide marketplace services to non-beauty products. So we produce, um, you know, we work with toy companies, for example. We work in uh, personal care uh, for pharmacies and things like that. So I think it's been an interesting growth for us because we can see that our skills work across different categories in beauty, but also they can be transferable to other categories as well. But the thing we always have to be really careful about is does it make sense? So does it make commercial sense to add it? And what channels do we sell this through? So can we sell these products at a margin that makes sense for us? Or can we provide the services and the tech at the end so that someone else can do the marketing and we just do the back end, you know, all the, the middleware, the warehousing, the logistics? So it's been a really interesting process for us. We haven't always got it right, of course, because you don't. Um, but we've had some good successes and, uh, you know, we'll keep going on that. And, of course, you are going to be speaking at the Future event in Singapore in, at yes. the end of October. Uh, are you mm. doing a panel or are you doing a talk? I think I'm doing a panel this year. I talk <laughs> quite a lot, I must confess, so as you may have noticed. Um, I, if, if I can do any event that people send to me, I try and take it. Because I think there's something really important about sharing with the wider community. And I also think there's something about being client side, because I used to be vendor side. And it was always really difficult to understand how customers thought and if you don't understand how customers think as a vendor, you kind of approach them in a slightly awkward way. So I always think it's in my interest to explain our business and explain our challenges and explain what works on marketing. You know, we don't give everything away, but we give enough away that people can be energized. Because I, you know, I talk to peers and they teach me how to do things and I think we have this obligation to, to pass the messaging on. So, you know, I always take the panels. I'll, I'll prefer a panel to a, a speech. I will do a speech if I have to. Um, it's just finding time to do the slides. Mm. But I tend to talk about data and customer experience and how you join it up through operational sort of backends and in-store and e-com. And that's a passion for mine because if you can actually join all that stuff up, what you get is a series of informed decisions that the customers love better rather than just throwing anything at them. And you also get uplift. And, and I think it's important for us as a group of marketeers to be seen as you know, personalized marketeers rather than spammers. 
And you don't just learn that. You, know, you don't just imbibe it from the air. Somebody has to talk about how they've done it to give the, the ideas to you. And while you know, what I do in beauty is very you know, focused on our industry, it's very transferable. You can use what we do in beauty, in banking, in telecoms and travel. So I think there's an obligation on us marketeers to, to share the basics, not necessarily all you know, your superpowers, but to share the basics and to make sure that they're in the industry so the whole industry gets a better vibe. That was fantastic. I know you've had a tougher week, uh, but you still found time to share some very interesting insights into how you do your job. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for taking the time with me.